Amen. Well, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and open up to Psalm 109. Uh, Psalm 109. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and we'll pass one to you. Uh, Psalm 109 is on page uh, 432 in the Bible that we hand out to you. Uh, just raise your hand and we'll, we'll, we'll pass one to you. love for you to be able to follow along. Um, not really important what I have to say, but it is important what this book has to say, and that's what we want to focus in on primarily. So we've been in this series, The Open Soul, talking about the Psalms all through the summer. We had lots of different people preaching, and I want to encourage you to go back uh, onto the website and listen to some of the sermons that have been preached. You know, the Psalms cover a range of human emotions and circumstances, predicaments in which people find themselves, and it's just a treasure trope. Uh, somebody said that you don't, so much, uh, you, you, you don't so much read the Psalms as you pray through them. And, and that's a wonderful gift that we have, God teaching us how to pray to Him through the Psalms. And so I really encourage you to take advantage of the summer in the Psalms, really open your soul to the Lord. Um, that's where we see growth and transformation ha- happening when we, we really get real with God and, and, and sort of open up what's going on in our lives. And I want to encourage you to follow the leadership of the psalmists as they take us on this journey. And this morning we're going to continue. Now, a few weeks back, uh, Andrew Franklin preached on a very difficult psalm, Psalm 88. It's a psalm, one of the most difficult psalms in the book. And there's a psalm, it was a psalm in which there's really very little hope offered. There is, and he uncovered it very well and, and helped us to see it. But it, one of the, 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 the wonderful things about the Psalm 88 was that it helped us to really understand the depth of human suffering and pain and to know that uh, oftentimes what we're going through is not going to be tied up in a, in a nice bow all the time. We're going to sit in struggle and, and pain and suffering sometimes. That's part of what it means to be a human being. And, and Psalm 88 really uh, helped us to see that. The Psalm we're going to look at today uh, you know, not to be outdone by Andrew Franklin, I try to pick a, another really difficult psalm uh, for us to look at this morning. This is Psalm 109, and this is uh, what's called an imprecatory psalm. Now, uh, the word imp- imprecation means to, to kind of speak a curse, to speak a curse. And there are three psalms in the book of Psalms in which the writer uh, particularly speaks a curse on somebody else who has harmed them or damaged them in some way. And they're very difficult psalms to sort of understand and process. There are a number of other psalms. So the the main psalms are 35, 69, and 109 are what's called imprecatory psalms, where somebody's speaking a curse. But then we find other passages within the psalms where this happens as well, imprecations. And uh, Psalm 137 is probably the most famous one. And, you know, you're sitting around hanging out with your friends who are skeptical about Christianity, and they, they bring up Psalm 37. Isn't there that psalm that talks about, you know, wanting the babies to be dashed on the rocks? And, and that, how do you explain that, you know, as a Christian? How, you know, how, what, what could the Bible mean in that? And it's a hard thing, and you're sitting there trying to think, of, yeah, I, I don't know how to explain, explain that. And so this morning we're going to sit with that difficulty a little bit. Um, we're not going to look at Psalm 137, although I, I will mention later on uh, what I think is going on there with that statement about uh, the babies. Um, but we're going to sit mainly with Psalm 109, which I think is even a more challenging one in many respects. So uh, let's go ahead and take a look at Psalm 109 and see what kind of lessons God would bring out for us uh, in this imprecatory psalm, as it's called. Starts off, it says in 109, to the choir master, a psalm of David. And I find it a little interesting that not only is this psalm in the book, but it was written to the choir master, which means that they would be in a liturgical, a worship setting, singing this psalm. Okay? Now, when you read it, I want you to try to imagine sitting there and singing this psalm as a group together. Um, 
but you'll see what I mean. So verse 1, the first five verses have a little bit of a courtroom feel to them. Um, Verse 1 says, Be not silent, O God of my praise. Um, Again, we've noted this many times that David, in the midst of his anguish, comes to God, which is something to be acknowledged and understood. He's not uh, dealing with his struggles on his own. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. Now, David is the king of Israel. One can only imagine the depth of struggle he would face in that position. Imagine how many people answered to King David, how many relationships he was managing. Imagine how much confusion, how many layers of complexity he was dealing with. Uh, you can't imagine the kinds of things that he would be facing in that, in that position. Um, they encircle me. The, we don't know who these people are, but they encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Verses 1 through 5, sort of like a courtroom in which David is, is describing his innocence in the situation. He's the victim of injustice, some sort of deep injustice. And um, I can get on board with the idea that David is, is innocent in this particular situation, there are a number of occurrences where David is faced with grave injustice and he handles it remarkably well. Some of you remember the story where uh, Saul is pursuing him to kill him and, and Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself and it's the very cave in which David happens to be hiding. And there's Saul, vulnerable and weak, and David in the strong position and he could easily raise his hand against Saul to kill him and he would almost have every right to do so. Here's Saul chasing him to kill him. And yet he withholds the sword. And he, le- he lets Saul be. There's another instance where David is on the way out of town uh, with a-, a number of his soldiers and his entourage. And there's a man named Shimeah who has it out for him. And he-, he runs, you get the picture that David is walking on the road. And then up along the road is the Shimeah running along, cursing David the whole way and pelting him with rocks, it says, and and grabbing handfuls of dirt and throwing at him because he hates David so much. And and David's there with all of his entourage and his soldiers, and and one of his soldiers comes up and says, David, this is ridiculous. I'll just go chop his head off. I mean, it's not a big deal. And and, and David says, says, no, uh, don't do that because um, maybe maybe, maybe if I I let this go, God will bless me, and, and, and maybe God has sent this... Uh, man to teach me a lesson. So, so we know that David has, the, has it within him to, to endure insult and accusation. And so when, he's, when he writes in these first five verses that, that really he's without blame, he has tried to love these people and yet they are cursing him and accusing him and attacking him, we can, we can understand that that very well could be the case. This isn't just one person's word against another. There really is some deep injustice against David at this point. We don't know what it is but we understand uh, the nature of it. Now, we move in verse 6 away from the trial to uh, the prosecution, to the, to the sentence. David wants a sentence now. Verse 6, appoint a wicked man against him, the person who's been attacking him. And, and this may be a way of saying each one. You could use this word to refer to each one who's been attacking him because we know from the first five verses that it's not just one person, it's several. Appoint a wicked man against my attacker, he's saying. 
Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. And he's just getting warmed up. May his days be few. May another take his office. And this verse was quoted uh, regarding Judas when Judas betrayed Jesus and they had to replace him with another apostle. This verse was quoted in Acts 20. May another take his office. In other words, the office that Judas held may be taken by another. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Verse 9, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. He wants their very memory tarnished. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. David's starting to get a little creative here now, right? He's letting the creative juices flow. He's imagining what he would want to happen to these people. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. I keep thinking of, you know, David. What would David be like on the basketball court when everybody started trash talking and you got on the wrong side of it, right? He's got incredible creativity as he keeps going on and on about all uh, his, his uh, fulminations against this, this accuser, this attacker. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that He may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For He did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse. Let the curses come upon Him. Kind of an eye for an eye we find in the Old Testament. Now, uh, I would say, uh, I mentioned verse 130, uh, chapter uh, 137, Psalm 137, in which it says, uh, something about the, the babies being dashed on the rocks. And, and in a sense, this is sort of the, the solution to that one. Uh, in that Psalm 137, uh, the Edomites have attacked Israel, and what they have done is taken the babies of Israel and dashed them on the rocks. That's what the verse previous to it says. And so the psalmist in his anguish is crying out and saying, let it be done to you as you did to us. So that's where this comes from. It's not just this, this desire that the psalmist has. Um, it's, it's a response. Uh, it's still harsh, but there's a little bit of uh, explanation there. And that's what we have going on in verse 17. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessings, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. Verse 21. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. In other words, all that David has just said Behind it, there's no intent to act on it himself. He's bringing it all to God and submitting himself to God as the righteous judge and the one who brings justice. Verse 22, For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken 
within me. I'm gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. You get a picture of David sitting in his room and as he writes out this psalm, feeling that tremendous weakness that can come upon us when we are under accusation, um, like a, a bug on a jacket flicked off. Like a, that's how David feels, like a shadow that as the sun goes down, melts into nothingness. David feels himself likewise. Verse 23, I'm gone like the shadow at evening. I'm shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads just like they did when Jesus was there on the cross. And it says the people walked by and wagged their heads in shame at what they saw. Verse 26, Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. I love it when one commentator says, what a wonderful way to turn aside an attack on you. And, and we see David doing this actually with Shemaiah who was throwing the rocks at his head and, and throwing dirt at him and cursing him to say, let them curse and I will trust God to bring blessing in the midst of it. It's a great way to turn an attack on you. Let them curse, but you will bless, O oh God. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. Verse 29, may my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. You see how connected David remains in the midst of his struggle. Connected to God. He envisions himself still praising God in the midst of this struggle. Verse 31, for he stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. And you might note this idea of standing at the right hand. At the very beginning, in verse 6, he wants a wicked man to stand against the one who is his accuser. But he longs for the Lord to stand at his right hand to be his defender. So it kind of closes out the psalm in that way. Who's standing next to you is the question. All right. Now, I don't think that in this morning that we have together to, to work through this, we're going to wrap all of this up in a nice, tidy bow. There's messiness here, and I think we're going to walk away from this understanding that there will always be kind of some messiness when it comes to the rawness of humans, human emotions and the kind of circumstances in which David finds himself here. Um, and, and we don't have to have it all wrapped, wrapped up, but we can understand some important things about the imprecatory psalms in general and this, kind of, this particular psalm. 109. Now, the first thing I want to say about this psalm is this lesson that we learn, that indignation has its place. Indignation has its place. Now, what does indignation mean? I know some of you are not, English is not your first language, and uh, some of you may not use that word very much. Indignation is, is anger or annoyance provoked by what is perceived to be unfair. Anger or annoyance pr- provoked by what is perceived to be unfair, some sort of injustice. Now, we find that there's three surprising properties of indignation here. The first one is that indignation is very natural. God made us to respond to injustice with indignation. Um, just like uh, C.S. Lewis says, if you drop a match in some kindling, a fire will, will, will blossom. 
The same happens with human beings. If you, if you uh, put them before injustice, there should be some response to it, some sort of indignation. And I know some of us have faced uh, circumstances like this. And, and maybe it was a, in a flash, somebody did something that uh, caused uh, you great harm, uh, that was very unjust, and your response was indignation immediately. Some of us may be dealing with circumstances that have simmered over a long period of time. Uh, it can happen in any social context. It can happen in our families. It can happen in the family that we, we grew up in. Um, it can be uh, something that happens at work. Uh, maybe something that happened immediately at work or something that's been simmering over a long period of time. It can happen with our spouses. Uh, this, this sort of simmering, this sort of injustice that takes place and our response of indignation. It's natural. It's human. It's the way God, us, God made us to respond uh, in that way. And it's also, to push that a little bit further, not only natural, but necessary to a certain degree. Uh, that we would be indignant about injustice is necessary. Um, people who fail to ex- experience and, and, and express indignation find themselves going along with those oftentimes who are doing wrong. So um, the Nazi sympathizers, for example, people who went along with Nazism, it was a failure of indignation. They failure to exhibit the proper indignation at what they saw. This is wrong. We should not be doing it. And that the, the failure to exhibit that emotion resulted in this ability to walk along and to, to be a sympathizer to go with. In fact, C.S. Lewis writes, um, writes this about the subject. He says, the absence of anger especially that sort of anger which we call indignation, can, in my opinion, be a most alarming symptom. And the presence of indignation may be a good one. We need a certain amount of indignation in our life. It's natural, and it guides us uh, into the future. And indignation needs, the last one, needs expression. See, Christianity is not um, a form of living, a way of life in which we attempt to suppress uh, all the emotions that we would be afraid to exhibit at church on Sunday, for example. Uh, that's not what Christianity is about. I think of you know, the, the institutional buildings that you go into, and uh, they're rightfully afraid of a fire, and so there's the, the sprinkler systems. And at any sign of smoke, the sprinkler comes on and just suppresses the fire. Uh, and, and sometimes that's how we respond to these strong emotions that we have. We think, oh, it's... It's, it's wrong, we shouldn't have these strong emotions, indignation, and so we suppress it. We don't allow it to, to blossom or occur because we think that's not what Jesus would have us do. But what happens when we do that over and over again, if we're experiencing injustice and we continue to suppress it like that, to not allow it any vent or, or any, uh, any life at all, um, then we, we, do, we, we, we lean into this kind of the soullessness. We just have to turn off our soul. Because it's part of our nature to respond that way. And so if we continually suppress it, we start to turn off that whole part of who we are. And we, after a while, we can't access it anymore. And we, we lose that ability to empathize with others who are struggling and suffering because we haven't acknowledged the injustice that's been perpetrated against us. And we can't connect to that anymore. And, and somebody once said that what we bury rules us. What we bury rules us. And so continually burying the indignation will eventually affect very much how we live and walk through the world. And I think of, for example, I, I did some, some reading on this whole you know, concept of systematic rape that is so part 
of our world, um, just as a way for me to kind of connect into this. And it was the, very painful to read, you know, what, what's been going on in the Congo, for example, and t- some of the, the stories that people tell of the injustices that have been perpetrated against them, the women there. And, and you read that, and you think about these women who suffered these things, and you wonder, what would somebody like that experience when they read this psalm? You know, how would this psalm put words to some of their indignation and pain and suffering and frustration, right? This is, power, this is part of our world. And so for God to enter into the depth of this just shows his love and his mercy and his desire to take everything that we are and to bring it to him. Now, we may not have experienced that level of injustice, but to be human is to experience injustice. And I know that every single one of us sitting here today has experienced something of the sort or maybe right in the midst of it right now, uh, struggling with that anger and that bitterness and that, that, that frustration that comes with suffering uh, indignation. So the question then, to kind of put a fine point on it for me, becomes can we talk like this, right? In the midst of our anger and our suffering and our indignation and the injustice against us, Can we talk like this? Can we pray like this? Is it okay for us to follow? Is is David doing something that we should emulate here? And some of you are thinking, well, I'm actually pretty good at this kind of thing. Um, And I know because I've played basketball with you, and I know know, when you get on a roll, you can trash talk, and I know that that you would want to uh, have creative vent for this, and so part of you feels like, yes, I want to be able to do exactly what David is, is doing here. Um, and, and, and then we have this interesting thing in the New Testament where this very psalm is quoted with respect to Judas, which means that on some level, what, what David is saying here is, is carried out in the life of Judas. In other words, God carried out the imprecation uh, against the unknown accuser here uh, in the life of Judas, and, and, the, and Peter uh, quoted Scripture over that circumstance. So, so does that condone this? Can we, can we talk like this? Is this part of what it means to follow God? And, and then at the same time, we have to think about the other scriptures that deal with injustice and enemies and how you handle your enemies. And not even just in the New Testament, we have to resist the temptation to divide and say, well, this is sort of Old Testament way of handling things and there's a New Testament way of handling things. No, if you go uh, to other places in the Old Testament, you can find some statements that seem very contrary to what this psalmist is exhibiting here. So, for example, if we look at Leviticus 19, 17 through 18, um, I'm going to put it up there so you don't have to turn there. But you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Exodus 23, 4 through 5, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Proverbs 24, 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. And then that becomes quoted later by Paul in Romans 12, 20. 
It says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. So we've got this, this sort of complex response to injustice in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You've got this imprecatory psalm and David venting his frustration. And then you've got these calls to, to love the person, your enemy, the person who's brought injustice upon you. And so what is the place of indignation in our lives is the question. What is the role of indignation in our lives? What is its place? And I want to answer that question, which is the second part of what I want to talk about this morning. Its place, the place of indignation, its place is in the gospel. The place, the proper place of indignation is in the gospel. Let me explain what I mean by that. The first thing, there are two moves in this. To bring your indignation into the gospel, there are two moves. And the first one is this, is that we need to get the right framework for how the world works and what God is doing in the midst of this world. Uh, this, go back to the very beginning of the Bible. Human beings were put in the garden and they had everything that they needed, but they chose to do the one thing that God asked them not to do, to eat of the forbidden fruit. And so there was sin entered the world, and once sin entered through Adam and Eve, it spread to the rest of humankind, and we've been struggling with it ever since, and everybody who's ever walked this planet has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and because of that, we're separated from God, and we could have been left in that circumstance, but God in His great love, in His mercy, in His grace, pursued us all throughout the Old Testament through the people of Israel. They continually turned their backs on Him, but God did not give up until He came in the person of Jesus Christ to bring us back to himself, and he taught us how to live. He taught us about God. And then at the end of his life, he went to the cross, and there on the cross he became the sacrificial atonement for us to bring about reconciliation between us and God. And we can accept that reconciliation by faith in Jesus Christ. That atoning sacrifice can be applied to our lives so that then we're restored in relationship to our Maker. And we're living still in time. And at the end of time, God is going to return and he is going to execute judgment on this world. And so all of the injustice that's taken place will be handled at that time. God will make everything that's wrong right again uh, at that time. That's what we're moving towards. And that creates a kind of, that story, that's the gospel. And that story creates a kind of a framework in which we live and move and have our being in which we process the injustice that's perpetrated against us. And you can't, you can't successfully process that injustice without being in that framework. We were camping, a number of us, this weekend. And you know how important, if you've ever put up a tent, you know how important the framework is to the tent. The little poles, right? You, you, you've, you've got this cloth lying on the ground with no shape at all. And... Then you put the little poles in there, and all of a sudden it takes shape because it has the proper framework. And then, um, if you're playing a trick on somebody, while they're in the tent, you walk by and you pull the poles out, right? And what happens if you remove the framework from the tent? It comes crashing down on top of them, and, and they're, they're like locked in this cloth sealed in there and they're kicking around and you see them struggling and they can't get out they can't find the door they don't it's it's dark in there and and they feel if they're claustrophobic trapped and 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 it's fun um but (laughs) but it's a great (laughs) and no it didn't happen to me actually yeah i'm venting my frustration from the weekend because uh somebody tented me 
No, didn't happen, thankfully. I'm sure many thought of it. But um, that's how we often feel. That's how we will feel, I should say, trying to deal with indignation, with injustice, apart from the framework that God has given us. It's like you're trapped and you're struggling and you're kicking and you, you can't get, make any headway. You need the framework of the gospel to be able to deal with the injustice that others have brought upon you. I, I just can't. I, I've worked with lots of people in my life and without that, I don't know how you can process it. I, th- there's no framework. There's no way out. You're like that person stuck in that tent, kicking with no way out. You need the framework. And David in this psalm and in the other psalms exhibits that he's got this framework of the gospel, even in the Old Testament, clear in his mind. He understands that he's a sinful person. It's very clear in the the psalms. He understands his own weakness and failure over and over again. He understands that he's only uh, reconciled to God by God's mercy and grace. And so he leans into that relationship and he looks forward continually. He leans in by faith and he looks forward continually to the day when God will bring judgment. God will bring justice. And it's in that framework that David finds consolation and the ability to move through the indignation that wells up in him. And it's interesting that the indignation he expresses here, God even condones later as this scripture is applied to Judas in his betrayal of Jesus. Now, David releases himself the question of justice into God because he has the framework to hold up the tent. But he doesn't just stop there. He goes to God continually. So he has the framework. He understands the, the, the process of God's work through time in this world. And that gives him a framework so he, gets, he can handle indignation. But then he goes to God continually. Look back in the text with me in this process of relationship to God. We noted this at the very beginning. Here's David, and he's just madder than anything about this person who's accused him false, falsely and attacked him. And what do we do in that circumstance so often? We feel, oh my goodness, I am really mad right now. I must be really far from God. Right? And so we think, I can't pray. I can't do anything with God until I get myself right. And then I'll go back to God when I get it all figured out. David doesn't operate like that. It's in the midst of the heat of the battle, the intensity, that he goes to God. He takes that to God as well. And that's a huge critical lesson because what happens is if we say, well, I'm all mad right now. I can't go to God with this because I'm a bad person and he doesn't want to hear about this from me. And we, so we separate ourselves from God and then we're on the path of moving away from God and now we're trying to figure out the injustice that's been done to us by ourselves apart from the framework that God has given us. And we can't do it. We can't do it. And the cycle perpetuates itself and we get further and further away from God. And the struggle continues. Well, David, right at the beginning, be not silent, O God of my praise. He comes to God with the struggle and the pain and the frustration. And if we've said anything about the Psalms in this summer in the Psalms, that's what we've said. Go to God. 
Go to God with the pain and the struggle and the frustration. Don't try to do it on your own. And there's, there's, there, there, there's more examples of the intensity with which, God, with which David goes to God. First of all, I mean, David had to really sit there and think about some of the things he's saying about his accusers. Like this wasn't just a flash in the pan. He's really, he's angry. And he's, he's thinking about this. He's processing it through, but he's, he's writing it to God. And, and, and he's, not, he's not just... Um, just saying these things, if you go past verse 21, what do you recognize is that he's been fasting about all of this. His body has become gaunt. There's no fat left on his body because he's been going to God so continually with this struggle and this strain in his life. So we have this temptation to run away from God when we feel these strong emotions. David's impulse was to run to God with a greater sense of reality and transparency than ever, and with incredible uh, desire and longing expressed in the fasting uh, as he prays continually. Uh, And he's been doing it so much that he's gaunt. He's lost all of his fat. So we got to go to God. And then once we go to God, um, we've got this verse 21. We wait on God. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. In other words, David says in there that he's going to wait on God to bring about a solution to the problem. Now, I I don't think that means that you always just sit passively in the midst of injustice. I I don't think that's what that means. But there's a difference between acting out of the leading of God after you've prayed and you've talked to others and you've examined in Scripture the right response. There's a difference acting out of that than acting apart from God in your own strength and according to your own will. See, there's two different things. And David is making clear that he's going to wait on God for direction and for God's work on his behalf. And sometimes it does mean we don't act. We just wait. I mean, when Shimea was throwing the rocks and the dust at David, he didn't do anything. He just waited. He just let him hit him. And sometimes that's what we need to be doing. But the main thing is that we don't act on our own. We act with God's leading and guidance. So I think what this says is that we go to God and we, if you need to vent, then vent. If you need to express it to God, express it to God in all of its complexity and frustration and rawness and transparency. Bring it to God. He can handle it. He can actually handle it better than anybody else that you'd want to bring it to being God. Bring it to God. But don't stop in verse 20. See, that's what he does in verse 6 through 20. He brings it to God. But then don't stop there is the lesson. Wait on God. Release it to God, verse 21. Let God deal on your behalf. Remember that you too are a sinner forgiven in God's grace. You have not acted perfectly. And remember that God will bring about justice in this world fully and completely. And your weak attempts to bring about justice do not compare. And so you might as well let him take care of it. You might as well let him handle what only he can handle. Now, we've got some examples in the New Testament of people who experienced this kind of thing and responded in what I think are the, the, the best ways, ultimately. 
You've got Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church, who was preaching the gospel, and they didn't like what he was saying, and so they gathered around him and stoned him to death. And if anybody had opportunity to want to say the things that David says here, it would be Stephen, right? As they were throwing rocks at him till he died. But what does he say after the Holy Spirit comes upon him? He says, do not hold this sin against them. And then, an even better model, or the same model, you have Jesus on the cross, right? And what does he say as the people are wagging their heads as they walk by, and as they're hurling insults at him, and he's hanging there, he says, Father, forgive them, for you don't know what they do. That's still the model. That is still the example. Stephen and Jesus, that's where we want to end up to be able to pronounce forgiveness rather than cursing over those who perpetrate injustice in the world and in our lives. That's still where we want to go. But what Psalm 109 teaches us is that you can't fake that. Don't fake that. Go through the pain and the struggle and the real rawness of it and let God bring you to that place where you're able to forgive and to pronounce like Stephen and Jesus, Lord willing, what God would want you to pronounce. And this is the thing that we have to be so careful of is that we don't take a shortcut to that place. That we, we open up our souls to God in all the raw reality of it and let the Spirit bring us to the place of forgiveness. Because we can't do it on our own. We're incapable. One of the best books I read this summer was Unbroken. I didn't read it this summer, but um, I want to recommend it to you to read this summer if you haven't read it, if you're looking for a good book. I read it this past year. One of the best books this past year um, by, um, what's, what's her name, Hildenbrand, the, one, the woman who wrote, uh, Laura Hildenbrand, who wrote uh, um, um, Seabiscuit. And this book, Unbroken, is a remarkable story of uh, a, a man who, uh, he's in the military in World War II, and he's on an airplane in the typical story where they crash, and he's on the raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and they end up with a few other guys. They're on this raft for 47 days, world record, longest they've been on a raft. Incredible story. They're floating around in the Pacific Ocean, and the enemy planes are coming by and shooting at them, and they jump out of the boat, and there's sharks. So he jumps out of the boat, and as he's under the, he's hiding under the raft, and the sharks are coming up, and he's punching the sharks and kicking the sharks and then the planes go away and he climbs back into the raft and then the planes come back and start shooting him again so he jumps back out of the boat and starts punching and kicking the sharks again and then when the planes go away he jumps back into the boat and he does this three or four times I mean just an amazing story but that's not even the most painful thing that he endures once they're they they finally uh, come on to land which is in enemy territory they're taken to a prisoner of war camp and what goes on there is it just uh, despicable, inexplicable, horrible. Um, you can hardly imagine the depths of cruelty that this man experiences. And in this POW camp, there's one particular uh, soldier, enemy soldier, who is the worst. They call him the bird. And uh, he picks on the main character the most. He becomes sort of his pet, the one he wants to harm and destroy the most. And so um, you just watch this uh, day after day unfolding 
Um, and at the end of it, uh, they're released from the POW camp, and the main character comes back. Uh, this is a true story, by the way. He comes back to the United States, and he's filled with bitterness and rage because of what he's endured under the watch of the bird and the cruelty that he's experienced and the attacks he's been under. And he goes on for a while, and he, he turns to the bottle, and he starts to drink to sort of medicate against the bitterness and the anger and the pain that he's suffering under. And then, uh, at one point, somebody takes him to a Billy Graham crusade. And he comes to faith in Jesus Christ. He, he gets that framework, you know, of the world, the whole sin, redemption in Jesus Christ, judgment. He gets that framework. And I want to read to you what uh, Hildenbrand describes happens next. After, just right after he'd come to faith, when Louis, that's the main character, thought of his history all that he experienced, especially under this horrible tyrant for years. When he thought of his history, what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that the bird had striven to make him. In a single silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation, and helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he believed he was a new creation. And then the next year, a bunch of the soldiers returned to the concentration camp, and they were going to meet some of their captors. All of the captors were there except for the bird, because the bird had committed suicide in the intervening years. Louis felt something he had never felt for his captor before when he heard that he'd commit suicide. With a shiver of amazement, he realized it was compassion. At that moment, something shifted sweetly inside him. It was forgiveness. Beautiful and effortless and complete. For Louis Zamperini, the war was over. It was over, finally, when he was able to forgive. But he couldn't forgive in his own strength. All he could do was have the bitterness fester inside of him and grow and begin to rule his life. But with Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, he came to the place where he was able finally to forgive. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the gospel in our lives. That we might not live with the bitterness festering inside of us, but there might be a place for it to go. So I want to ask you this morning, first of all, are you angry? And on some level, I want to say good, because that means your heart is still engaged, right? It's a natural response. But then I want to ask you, are you trying to solve it on your own? Are you trying to solve it on your own? And I want to say, not so good if that's the case. Because we as human beings do not have the capability to solve it on our own. But we have been given a framework and a God who wants us to go to Him. To, to bring our indignation and the injustice perpetrated against us. That He might solve it in us through Jesus Christ and the Gospel. So this morning as we finish up, I'm going to pray. But I want to ask those of us who are laboring deeply under some sort of bitterness or, or indignation. Uh, maybe you've suffered some uh, accusation. 
some sort of injustice against you. I want to ask you this morning, may this be the morning where you put a stake in the ground and you say, I'm going to stop trying to fix this on my own. But I'm going to invite God in. I want you to have a picture of David who went to the Lord with his frustration, who fasted and prayed and stayed connected to God. And I want to ask you to make that your picture for this coming season as you face your circumstances and the injustice against you. We're going to have people on either side as we take communion this morning ready to pray for you. And I ask you if you have put the stake in the ground against uh, letting the bitterness fester, fester, you want God to begin to work in the process in your heart, that you would go to one of these people and, and just pray and just say, say, I'm opening the door for God to, t- to I'm, I'm turning this over to the Lord. No longer do I want to try and fix this on my own because I can't. I'm inviting God in to heal me of my bitterness and my anger and my frustration and my pain because I know he's the one who can do it. Let's pray. God represented in this room are all kinds of relationships and thousands and thousands of relationships and being sinful human beings, we know that those relationships have been twisted and broken. We've experienced injustice and even right now, as I'm praying, I think of things that have been said to me and done to me in the past. And we know that in burying them, they become a prison to us. They begin to take control of our lives and, and, and guide us in ways that we would not want to go. And some of us this morning, we may have thought that we had to bury them. That was the only thing we could do to deal with the injustice and our anger and our bitterness is just to bury it. And to put more and more dirt on it and to cover it up and and try to pretend that it wasn't there. But you're calling us to a different path this morning, a redemptive path in the gospel. There is a place we can go with our frustration and our bitterness and our anger and our indignation. That's big enough to handle it. There is a redemptive balm that can be placed on our pain, and that is the gospel. And so this morning we come to you thankful that you have brought, given us the gospel and that in it we can have the proper framework and we can go to you and let the Holy Spirit work and begin the process of releasing us from the bitterness and the anger and the frustration and to let the healing begin. And this morning, Lord, let us put a stake in the ground, each and every one of us, against bitterness festering and ruling and becoming a prison for us. Help us as we take communion this morning to also be taking a step into the future with the gospel. A step into grace. A step into the work of Christ in this area in our lives. And my hope and our our dream is that represented in this room would be people, uh, this chair and that chair and this person and that seat And over here, and this person's brother and sister and spouse, people who've been released from the bitterness because they've taken it to the Lord and found healing and redemption. Lord, do your work in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.